y'all enjoy your break? I understand the Norway school is watching us live, so let's say hi to the Norway school. Woo-woo! Hello to everybody in Norway. All right, that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. All right, we're going to start into the notes that you have, and this will be the non-picture side, the other side, and uh, just talk a little bit about some stuff. And um, I'm going to use kind of a weird tool or whatever to uh, get us going. If you would, hit that next slide, please. Somebody up there? Oh, there you go. We're going to actually talk about the three little pigs, but I, but I need you all to help me. And uh, let's see, I need the... In a minute, do you, how many of you remember the story of the three little pigs? All right. I want the guys, I'm going to switch it around. The girls are going to be the wolf, and the guys are going to be the little piggies. All right. Now, here's what I want you to do while we're going through the story. He's going to kind of follow us up there, and I'm going to read it literally out of this little children's book. But here's what I want you to be thinking about. What are some spiritual lessons or principles you can take away from this story. I mean, I'm not doing this just because it's silly or something. They're really, to me, there's some really cool stuff we can take away from this story. So I'm going to read through it, and I want you guys to be ready. The, the wolf is the girls. The piggies are the, little, are the boys, all right? But I want... Do what? The little pigs? But I want, to, I want you to be thinking about what are some of the spiritual lessons that you can take away from the story, Okay. So once upon a time, there were three little pigs who lived in a cozy house with their mother. One day, Mother Pig said, you're all grown up now. It is time for you to go out into the world and build your own houses. Build them strong, and you'll be safe from the big bad wolf. The first little pig was a lazy little pig. He built the simplest kind of house so he could have time to rest. His house was made of straw. It was not very strong. The second little pig was a playful little pig. He built his house quickly so he could go out and play. His house was made of sticks. It was not very strong. The third little pig was the smartest pig of all. He listened carefully to his mother's advice and built a strong house of bricks. The little pigs didn't know that lurking in the nearby forest was the big bad wolf. The wolf was very hungry, and for his supper, he wanted a pig. The big bad wolf knocked on the first little pig's door. All right, girls, you're the wolf. Anybody remember what he said? Little pig, little pig, let me come in. All right, guys, we're the little piggies. What did the piggies say? Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. So that's what the first little pig said. Then the wolf said, anybody? I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. The wolf huffed and he puffed and he blew the straw, the straw house down. The first little pig ran away as fast as his legs could take him. Next, the wolf knocked on the second little pig's door. All right, girls, were the wolf. Little pig, little pig, let me come in. All right, guys, what did the pig say? Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. What did the wolf say? Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. So the wolf huffed and he puffed and he blew the stick house down. And the second little pig ran away as fast as his legs could take him. 
The third little pig heard a knock on his door. He was surprised to find his trembling brother standing on the other side. The big bad wolf blew our houses down, they cried. Quick, come inside, said their brother. Minutes later, there was another knock on the door. What does the wolf say, ladies? Little pig, little pig, let me come in. All right, guys, what does the pig say? Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. What's the wolf say? Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So the wolf huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not blow the house down. Then the big bad wolf was very angry. I'll get you, little piggies, he snarled. And he climbed up on the roof and crept toward the chimney. Hearing the wolf on the roof, the third little pig was quick to light a fire. The wolf slid down the chimney and was met with hot crackling flames. Now this is a kitty version. And it says the wolf's tail was badly scorched and he ran from the house. Now, in the real version, I think he actually becomes part of the soup or something. Whoop. The bottom line is they took care of the wolf. All right, crazy little story. What are some spiritual principles you could take away from that story? What are some? It's worth taking time to build a proper house and foundation. What else? Yes, sir. Follow the advice of your parents. What other things could you take away from it? Anybody? Don't be lazy. <laughs> what else? Yes, sir. Very cool. Good to have people you can look to if something happens. Good observation. Don't let just anyone into your life. Any other thoughts? Be prepared. I mean, to me, there's lots of things you can keep doing. Here's one that I like to get you to think about. What if the wolf is time? What if the wolf is time? How many of you realize time is going to knock on your door and test what you build? Does that make sense? Time, as you go from your 20s into your 30s and your 30s into your 40s and your 40s into your 50s. I know right now that looks like a long way off, but it's closer than you think. But what's more important than that is to think, period. Like, I love, to, I love to just say to people, think. And then I love to put words after that. Think decades. Think decades. Are you, if you do life the way you're doing life right now for decades, will you build the kind of life you want to be living? I mean, think about it for a minute. If you do life the way you're doing life right now, Decades from now, will you be living the life you, you want to be living? Can you get to where you're trying to go the way you're going? Can you end up where you'd like to end up if you keep doing what you're doing right now? 
Now, obviously, if not, let's figure out what needs to change and change it. But back to this story a little bit. What if the wolf is time? And what if the building materials are words? What if the wolf is time? And what if the materials you build out of are words? What do you mean by that? Whoever's words define you is your God. Whoever's words define you, that person is your God. I'm 57 years old. I've already told you that. I've been walking with the Lord almost 35 years. You could basically split it in half, my time with God. And the first about 12 to 15 years... I lived where the words from my childhood still rang in my soul and defined me. My father was a pretty good guy, doing all the counseling I've done. He was a pretty good guy. He wasn't an alcoholic, a drinker. He wasn't a womanizer, had a problem with porn. I mean, he wasn't a perfect guy, but he wasn't, you know, just like overtly damaging. But... He was very poor at expressing affection. He was very poor at being encouraging and affirming. When I was 17 years old, I got on a plane to leave Buffalo and fly to South Carolina to go to college. As I got on the plane, or as we were at the Buffalo airport, a bunch of my friends there to see me off, and my father pulled me aside, and for the second time in my life, he told me out loud that he loved me. Two times in 17 years. Is that enough? That's ridiculous. Two times. The first time he told me he loved me was when he was getting on a plane to fly to Korea. The second time he told me he loved me was when I was 17. Now, one phrase that was seared in my soul was, you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. I have, an old, I have four older sisters, a brother, and then me. I'm number six of seven, and then six years behind me, I have my little brother. So what was I for six years? I was the baby with five moms. Because I had four older sisters and a mom. My point is, my older brother was very outdoorsy, hunt fish, work with his hands, build wood cabinets, and all, all the stuff my father wanted. My father definitely loved, enjoyed Connected to my older brother better, better than he did me. That doesn't hurt me to say that. Probably did when I was a kid. But I'm kind of a book freak. I'm more on the inner stuff. And my dad and I just never connected that well. Well, I'd, I'd, I wanted so bad for him to approve of me. And I would do anything. I mean, I have places on my body that hurt to this day because of things I did in sports to just make him proud of me. But he just didn't know how to communicate it. So that phrase, you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything, was seared in my soul. Now, how many think that the moment I got saved, all that disappeared? Yes or no? Yeah. Wouldn't it be sweet if it did? Yeah. Wouldn't it be sweet if just, you just got this like, you know, like, I don't know, you probably don't remember the old uh, cassette tapes and you could take a magnet and erase them. Wouldn't it be cool if you could just erase all that and start over? Now, you can't that quickly and easily, but you can 
do it intentionally and progressively. So the phrase that kind of affected my life for about the first 15 years of being a Christian was you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. So when things would go poorly, I would fall into that self-talk. Now somewhere in there, God helped me begin to learn some of the stuff we'll talk about this week where God began to help me learn how to identify, challenge, and change destructive patterns of thought, belief, and behavior. Identify, challenge, and change destructive patterns of thought, belief, and behavior. The bottom line is, whoever's words define you, that person is your God. So one of the things God helped me do as a young, not a young Christian, about 10, 12 years into my Christianity, is what I call switching fathers. I switched fathers. Now, did I lose respect for my earthly dad? No. Did I stop loving my earthly dad? No. You know what the crazy thing is? I, when my dad passed away, I probably had the best relationship with him of all the kids. You know why I think I did? Because I quit looking for him to give me something he didn't know how to give. Because I was getting it somewhere else. You follow me? My father never really got all that good about giving love. But it didn't matter to me anymore because I was getting my love met. Where? From God. Now back to our three little pigs. What if the wolf is time? And what if the building materials, straw sticks or stone, what if the building materials are words? Do you realize that your life goes nowhere that your words haven't gone first? Your life goes nowhere that your words haven't gone first. I believe that boy over there is going to like me. I sure would like to be with that girl over there. That's never going to happen before you say it. You always say first. Say yes if that makes sense. That's such a simple principle. Life never goes anywhere your words haven't gone first. Why is that important? Because guess what? If you can choose it, you can change it. If you can choose it, you can change it. Can you choose the words that you say? Then guess what? You can change them. If you can choose it, you can change it. Well, if, you're, if your life never goes anywhere your words haven't gone first, then why can't you intentionally send your words where you want your life to follow? Does that make sense? I spent the majority of my life up to this point living under a cloud that I never fully pleased my father. Somewhere back... Now it's probably been around 15-ish, 20-ish years. I switched fathers. And guess what I now found that I have? A father who's crazy about me. A father who thinks I'm wonderful. A father who likes the way I'm wired. A father who's thrilled. He, he's waiting for me to wake up every day because he wants to spend time with me. I do have a little bad news for you. 
I am his favorite. Sorry. <laughs> now think about that. I've learned to live out of this place where I have a dad now who's just goo-goo-eyed crazy about me. And so now when I think forward, I think through that grid, that filter, that, that, that array of thoughts. But I didn't used to. Still talking about three little pigs. The wolf is time. The building materials, straw, stick, stone, are your words. One of the most important things you could ever learn is how to monitor and manage your use of words. Monitor, what does that mean? Be aware and then manage. Be intentional. Be aware and be intentional. Be aware and be intentional about your use of words, particularly about whom? Yourself. You know what I've learned to do? I've learned to say nice things to myself. Anybody want to finish it? About myself. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't it ridiculous that that has to be a revelation to us? I've learned to look in the mirror and say, you know what, dude? You, you, you all right. I've learned to look in the mirror and say, you know what, man? If I was your friend, I think I'd like you. How many of you think it's okay to do that? How many of you feel creeped out when you try to say nice things to yourself about yourself? You ever done that before? You ever stood in front of the mirror and said nice things to yourself? Here's the problem. Whose voice do you hear more than anybody else's? Think about that for a minute. Whose words do you hear more than anybody else's? Your own. Why not be intentional? Why not say about yourself what God says about you? My father would say, you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. And that, remember what I said, whoever's words define you, that person is your God. Words shape reality for you. So I walked with God for a decade or more. And those words defined me. Because I'll be quite honest with you. I'm not a very disciplined person. I'm kind of laid back and relaxed. I just kind of, you know, I'm just kind of chilled. It's how I, you know, whatever. Well, what I used to do is I would compare myself to these type A driven people that get all kinds of stuff done. And I would compare myself to them and I'd say, man, you are such a loser. And I saw myself as a loser. Listen, I was pastor of my church for, I bet it didn't take me two years. And I figured out, you're never going to pastor a big church, dude. You just don't, you don't have it. But it hurt like the Dickens, because I heard it through a filter that you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. You don't work hard enough to have a big church. Well, when I was getting a hold of some of these things we're here to talk about, one time I was having this moment with God and I was kind of wrestling around this thing. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. John 8, 31. You don't have to turn there. You can just write it down if you want. John 8, 31 and 32 says this. Jesus said to those Jews who believed, if you continue in my word, 
then you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. All right, listen to me. This is, this is worth the whole week. If you are ever stuck, remember that drawing I have had up here? If you're ever stuck, if there's ever an area of your life you're not making the progress you'd like to be making, it is always, say always one time, it's always the absence of, misapplication of, or insufficiency of truth. Always. If you are ever stuck in a cycle you can't break out of, the way you see yourself, the way you perceive your relationship to others, the way you project your thoughts into the future, anything about yourself that is stuck, it is always because there's some element of truth that is not available to you, working for you, or you're not using correctly. So what happened? Can God say to me, here I am tooling along saying, God, please deliver me from this self-esteem problem that I have because I believe I'm lazy. Did God, do you think God said to me, Chipper, you're the hardest working type A person I've ever created? You think that was what he said? Why, why didn't he say that? Because it's not true. Thank you, by the way. Because it's not true. You think I'm lazy? <laughs> I don't <laughs> Because it's not true. Will a lie set you free? No. Well, guess what he did say? So I'm, I'm crying out to God. God, help deliver me from this damaging issue that, that keeps my self-esteem from breaking free to another place. And you know what he showed me? He showed me a person looking at his watch, tapping his foot, with another person standing there pouring out their problems. So imagine you're standing here you know, with, with great emotion pouring out the struggles of your life and the person you're talking to is looking at their watch. Come on. Okay, get it out. I, I've got places I need to be. I heard that part. Here's a hanky. Stop your crying. Okay, hurry. I got that part. How many of you'd like to go to somebody like that to talk about your problems? So God shows me this. I see it in my, the screen of my mind and I'm like, wait a minute, God wait a minute, are you saying you made me this way? Wait a minute, God, are you saying it's okay for me to be this way? And then God said, Chipper, I made you the way you are so that people would feel comfortable to share their pains and problems with you. Now, how many of you know that truth can set you free? And what happened in a moment of encounter with God was I realized I was right. I will never build a big church. But I was wrong to let that be the assessment of my worth and value. And you know, now when I travel, I don't travel to these bigger ministries, smaller ministries, or anywhere in between because of the big church I built, because I didn't. At its peak, my church was about 200 people. But why I travel is because of how I understand the soul works and how God works to fix it. And now I'm brought into all these church settings, not because I'm this amazing pastor. I'm brought in because God spent decades teaching me how to gently, quietly invite people's souls toward health and wholeness. 
Now, how many of you know that resets something in my soul? What am I trying to say? The wolf is time. And as you go through this thing called life, time will test you. And the building materials are words, concepts, ideas. And you learning to monitor and manage how you use words will be the key to everything. It's really important that you learn to do that. All right, let's start running through your notes. Any quick questions? Let's run through your notes real quickly. This should be the side of your notes that has no drawing on it. All right, we ready back there, somebody? All right, we're all in search of the good life. Would you agree with that? This isn't going to be in your notes, so if you've got somewhere to write this if you want to. <clears throat> I read a book one time called Authentic Happiness. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And basically what it was about was the whole idea of why aren't more people consistently happy. And it's study. It was a secular book, not a Christian book. And it talked about Next one, please. And it talked about the whole idea that enduring authentic, enduring means it lasts, authentic means it's not just a spike of something, but it's the real thing. It's really what we would call joy. So they found that enduring authentic happiness is a combination of three factors. All right? The first one, you can go ahead and hit the next slide. Go ahead and hit it three times so we get all three of them. There you go. Just stop right there. All right, they found three factors. One is what they call your happiness thermostat. Y'all know what a thermostat is, right? That's a thing on the wall somewhere, and you set it at a certain temperature, and then it works to maintain the temperature range. Well, how many of you realize that the family you grew up in, the culture you grew up in, has a thermostat setting for emotion? Some families slash cultures are more expressive of emotion, some families and cultures are more repressive of emotion. Say yes if that makes sense. So in the family you were born into and in the culture into which you were born, you were given a, a, a thermostat for emotion. Now, I would challenge you to compare your culture, both family and culture, to the kingdom of God and decide whether your family and culture matches the kingdom or not. Because your challenge is not to reproduce your culture, it's to reproduce his culture, which is called the kingdom of God. So you got to figure out not how to honor your culture, but how to honor his kingdom by learning how to process, express, and enjoy emotions the way he means for you to, not your culture. Say yes if that made sense. All right, Oop, where'd it go? There you go. All right, I want you to guess. They, they, they uh, did percentages, the percentage of impact for each of these three factors. What percentage of impact do you think the happiness thermostat had? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50? How much impact on your authentic, enduring happiness do you think it had? 50% up here? 40 what do you think? 65? All right, hit it one time. 50%. They found studying cultures all over the world, world that your happiness thermostat established about 50% of the 
range of emotion that you live in. How about life circumstances? What do you think? 10, you only got 50 to work with. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. What do you think? Life circumstances. What do you think? What percentage? 30? 35? Guess what? 10%. You know what they found? They studied lottery winners. People that win millions and millions of dollars. Do you know what they found? About three years later, they were just about as happy as they were before they won it. They studied people that suffer traumatic events, the loss of a loved one, terrible things. And you know what they found? About three years later, they were just about as happy as they were before the event. In other words, life circumstances don't affect your happiness as much as you think. One exception they found. If you live in a place where you're not able to provide food, housing, and clothing for your family. In other words, if you live below the true poverty line and can't take care of your family, that affects your happiness. But if you're above the minimal, you know, you can provide a roof, clothes, and food, your circumstances do not affect your happiness. All right, what does that leave? Hit it one more time. 40% of your happiness is influenced by factors that you can learn to manage. Now I'll go you a little bit further. The 50% that's your happiness thermostat, that sets a range of happiness. I believe if you learn to manage things correctly, you can live at the top of your range. So the bottom line is you can affect 80 to 90% of your enduring authentic happiness by learning to manage things that are within your control. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about this week. All right, next one, please, sir. How many remember Saul in Acts chapter 9? Saul, before he came, became Paul, was going out and persecuting the church. Now, we don't have to read all this. This is where he's heading toward Damascus. What happened on the road to Damascus? Anybody remember? What happened? He met Jesus. How did Jesus meet him? Knocked him off his horse, blinded him. All right, go to the next one, please. I think it just continues it. And then they have this encounter. Who are you, sir? Saul asks. And the voice replies, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Go ahead and go to the next one. All right. I see two key principles in this encounter. And it's important that you chew on this a little bit. Devoted, committed people can and often do miss God's agenda. What does that mean? I believe Saul loved God. I believe that he loved God the best he could based on what he knew and didn't know. And in persecuting Christians, he thought he was serving God, helping God, working for God. But he was mistaken. So I believe as I travel around to churches, I see people that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're still disconnected from what he's doing in the earth today. Now, first of all, I challenge you to that. How are you going to live your life in such a way that you're going to be sensitive and involved in what God's doing? There's a little teaching I love to do out of Joshua 3, and Joshua talks about going after the presence of God. Well, to me, the presence of God is where God is, not where he was. 
Do you realize that the tragedy of the church historically is that every move of God stops, camps out around their revelation, and every, every move of God persecutes the next one? So it's gotta, you got to think how you're going to be a part of a, a walk with God where you can, can kind of transcend more than one move of God and, and adjust yourself. So devoted, committed people can and often do miss God's agenda. Next one, please, sir. <clears throat> Our understanding of how God changes us is still seriously flawed. Now, buried in this story of Saul on the road to Damascus, I think some really important stuff. How God changes us, I, I don't think the church has still wrapped its head around. Next one, please. On the road to Damascus, God changed Paul's direction. But in the desert, he changed Paul. Anybody know how long it was from this moment on the road to Damascus before Paul started his public ministry? Depends on who you study behind you. If you combine some things in Galatians and some things in the book of Acts, you land somewhere between 13 and 17 years. Now, here's Saul, knocked off a horse by God. He goes and starts running his mouth, and they say, we better send him to the desert. He goes to the desert for 13 to 17 years. Say years. Does that seem like a long time to you guys? Years. One was a climactic, exciting event. The other was a lifelong, life-wide process. Now, to me, that's an extremely important concept. Because we, in our way of looking at spirituality, we kind of like events. How many of you like God to do cool stuff? I love it when God does cool stuff. But I've been at this now for this period of time. And here's the thing. Event-driven Christians are unhealthy and scary. Event-driven Christians are unhealthy and scary. Process Christians. Christians who understand that God is working a multi-decade process to turn me into the person he wants me to be to accomplish the things he created me to accomplish. Those people will live a long, rich, full, productive, fulfilling, joyful life in God. Now, what do I think a Christian walk should look like? It should look like, listen to how I'm going to say this, an event-punctuated process. I love events. I love encountering God. I love slobbering, blubbering, whatever. I love having emotively powerful engagements with God. I love it. But I don't base my life on them. I don't base my life on them. I base my life on what? It's not as effective. Can I borrow your Bible? It's not as effective if I use my iPad. I base my life on his word. Why? Because experiences are a little subjective. I base my life on his word and I enjoy all the experiences he gives me. Does that make sense? 
So please don't hear me saying don't have experiences. Man, have all of them you can get. But don't base your life on them. Pastoring like I did in one place for 24 years, the Christians that scared me the most were the ones that were junkies for the next feeling. They just, when they weren't feeling something dramatic, they almost fell away from God. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's the same kind of person who's been married three or four or five years and says, I'm not in love anymore. Because you're not feeling some crazy, you know, high of love. Which, by the way, can last the whole time you're married. Doesn't ever have to go away. But you got to be ready if you don't feel that. The point is, there's a way to do this thing that can carry you for the rest of your life. Next one, please. How many of you likes the word suddenly? Isn't the word suddenly cool? One time I was teaching about this stuff. And a friend of mine said, use your computer and do a word search on the word suddenly and then do it on the phrase, it shall come to pass. Guess how many times the word suddenly is in the Bible? Anybody want to guess? Pardon me? A thousand? Hit it one time. 41 times. 41 times. Guess how many times it's in the Bible, it shall come to pass. Huh? All right, hit it one time. 454 times. What am I trying to say to you? God is a God of process. Events are cool. Have all of them you can get your hands on. But I beg you, don't be a person who bases your life on events. Be a person who understands the process of God. God, God will work on you thousands of ways in thousands of situations to teach you one thing. And then he'll move on to the next one. Now, my personal opinion, I told you earlier... While you're here, there's probably one to three things God wants you to work on. What do you think I think is the most important? Why did he create you? Why did he create you? Relationship. So you guys are in a place where you know to be careful how you answer. Most places I go, when I say, why did he create you? These are the answers I usually get. To worship him. To serve him, to build his kingdom in the earth. All of those are wrong. If you believe God's purpose for creating you was to worship him, then he's a rock star that's hungry for fans that adore him. Do you think God's egotistical? Needy? That's absurd. God didn't create you to worship him. Worship of him is a byproduct of the real reason he created you. He created you for what? Now, you know where people usually go next? Why did he create you? They say this, to love him. Guess what? Wrong answer. He didn't create you to love him. He already had love. What did he need? What does love always need? 
someone to give it to. Why did he create you? To love you. Why do you exist? To be loved. To be loved. What's the most important thing you could ever learn to do? To live loved. To live loved. Everything else follows that. We love him because he first loved us. You follow me? The thing that's changed my life the most is I've learned to live loved. Do you know that it's been about a decade? It's been about a decade since I didn't feel loved for even a second. I've almost forgotten what it feels like to not feel loved. My wife says it's creepy to say this next statement, but I've virtually forgotten how to have a bad day. I'm just like, hmm, how do you do that? How, how, do, I, how do I get back to that bad place? I can't find my way. Now, I'm not saying that to brag on me. I'm trying to tell you when you get, when you get things in their right order, do I want my life to produce cool things for God? Do I want to live a life of intimacy, impact, influence, and income? Yes. But I've learned that the secret, the secret is to get first things first. And the first thing I decided I want to be good at is I want to be good at the re, at why, the why of my existence. How many of you agree if you, if you accomplish the, the thing that God created you for, you're doing a pretty good job. Well, do you realize that God created you so that he could love you? There's nothing more important for you to work on than learning to live loved. Does that make sense? And then here's what's crazy. When you learn to live loved, love your neighbor how? Guess what happens? I don't have a problem loving anybody. Because I've learned to love the hardest person I'll ever have to learn to love. Who's that? Yourself. If you could ever learn to love yourself, everybody else is easy. Everybody else is easy. I'm telling you, it's the secret to everything. The secret to everything is submitting to his love, surrendering to his love. Thursday night, Lord willing, you know, the, the, the internet thing we're going to do Thursday night, I'm going to talk about enlarging your capacity to receive his love. We're going to talk about, and we'll kind of talk about it all week, but we're going to specifically talk about how you can enlarge your ability to take in God's love and what hinders that. And what sets the limits on that? So we'll talk about that Thursday night, Lord willing. All right, next slide, please. All right, this is still in your notes, I think. Tell me if we're not in your notes. Are we still in your notes? 
No, that might not be. Go, just forget that. Go past that one. Tell me when we hit something. That, keep going past that one. I know that's not. Let me see your notes. I don't want to take too much time for this. Keep going. Keep going. This is good stuff, but we don't need to go. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep uh, keep going. Yeah, we better skip. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There we go. Back up. There we go. All right. <laughs> I just, we just don't have time to do all that stuff. All right, what this is, this little grace for the race. I've been a counselor for almost 30 years. Do I look depressed to you? I've been, I, listen, when I'm at home for a week at home, I still right now do anywhere from 10 to 15 hours a week of eyeball to eyeball in, the, in what I call the guts and glory of people's lives. I, I used to do 20 to 25. At one time, I did 30 to 35 hours a week of counseling. I've heard all kinds of awful, hurtful stories. Why am I not depressed? Why am I not crazy? Why don't I dislike people? Why don't I react to people's ugliness and selfishness? Well, I've learned some things that help me stir and steer my heart. Stir my heart and steer my heart. I've learned some stuff that when I was learning it, I had to think about it that I no longer have to think about. So what I'm going to share with you, a little grace for the race, is what I call my personal passion points that keep me flowing with love toward people even after I've seen so much pain. I could sit up here for the rest of the week and tell you story after story after story of stuff I've seen and heard and been in the middle of. So if you were to sit down in front of me in a counseling situation, I don't even have to consciously do this anymore, but I decide this. I believe every one of us is doing the best we can with what we have. So when you sit down in front of me, I don't know what's broken. I don't know what's messed up. I don't know what's working and what's not working. But what I do know is I decide to believe you're doing the best you can with what you have. What does that mean? There's either something you need that's missing or there's something you got that you don't need. But you're doing the best you can with what you have. Dude. You mean somebody who's abusing someone is doing the best they can with what they have? I believe so. How can you believe that? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever met an abusive person who wasn't abused? I never have met one. I've never met a yeller who wasn't yelled at. I've never met an emotional distancer who wasn't. Are you following me? Whatever you're dealing with in your life, it's probably not there by choice. I mean, listen to this simple little side principle. In childhood, the outside shapes the inside. In childhood... The outside shapes the inside. How many of you agree with that? Say yes if you do. 
In childhood, the outside shapes the inside. How many of you got to pick the family you grew up in? How many of you remember being a disembodied spirit floating around heaven and God came to you and said, Chipper, will you go down there and be Leroy and Emily's sixth kid? Anybody remember that? We're going to really pray for you if you do. Remember what I said, if you can choose it, you can change it. How many of you got to choose the family you were born into? How many of you got to choose the culture you were born into? Whether you were male or female, tall or short. How many of you got to choose all that stuff? Nobody's hands up. So, in childhood, the outside shapes the inside, right? Now, here's where it gets interesting. In adulthood, the inside shapes the outside. In adulthood, whatever was put into you in childhood will shape the world you create around you unless you learn to change it. If you were dishonored in childhood, you will create a life in adulthood that is built around your sense of dishonor unless you change it. You follow me. How many of you have ever seen a person grow up in an abusive home and they either become abusive or they marry someone who is? What? Then let's say that marriage ends in divorce and they get involved with God and start to get a little bit healthier. And then God forbid, what do they do a year later? They marry another one. Why? Because whatever childhood put into you, you will recreate around you unless you change it. Does that make sense? And what am I talking about? I believe all of us are doing the best we can with what we have. Whatever childhood gave you is all you've got to work with until you allow God to get in there and do what you're doing up here right now. Allowing God to start messing with the messages that are banging around in your soul. And you've got to decide which of them you're going to keep, which of them you're going to change, and which of them you're going to throw out. And we could spend the whole week talking about that. Next slide, please, sir. All right, you may not be responsible for the way you are. What do I mean by that? How many of you know life runs us over? You know? So you may not be responsible for the way you are. Hit it one more time. But you are responsible for changing the way you are. I have kind of a sarcastic way I say some things. For instance, the truck that ran you over is not coming back to fix you. Rarely, rarely will the people that harmed you be part of your healing. Rarely will the people that harmed you be part of your healing. What does that mean? Whatever deficiencies your parents operated from, they probably are not going to help you fix. Does that make sense? you're probably going to have to learn to go to other sources. Who's the number one source to learn to go to? 
God and the people that he provides. Every setting you were born into, every family and every culture has deficiencies. It's not dishonoring to be aware of their deficiencies. Some people act like it is. And that's where we'll be talking all this week about boundaries. Next one, please, sir. First statement, all of us doing the best we can with what we have. The next one, and these are just things I've learned to keep myself healthy. If it's going to be, thank God, it's not up to me. Listen, man, if I thought I had to fix all the situations that ever land in front of me, I'd be a nutcase. I've had counseling appointments where people I've never met before sit down in the room and they begin to tell me what all's going on and what we're there to work on. And I'm not kidding you, it is, it is unbelievable sometimes. But what I learned years ago is Philippians 2.13, which says this, For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when you sit down in front of me needing help, what I'm thinking is, I'm not responsible for fixing this. God is. And honestly, what I've learned, how to position my heart, wow, it's going to be fun watching God do this. And it's just helped me stay healthy that I can't fix anybody. I can't fix anybody. Next one, please. Two common but wrong attitudes about change. The Nike slogan, just do it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say to a depressed person, well, just go home and pray, play praise music and you'll feel better. Now, honestly, I will slap you and pull your hair if I ever hear you say that. Now, is it good to play praise music? Of course it is. But how dare we make depression that simple? Well, if you just pray more and read your Bible, you'll feel better. Does prayer and reading your Bible help? Hopefully it does some. But is it the answer to everything? How dare we dishonor the complexity of this creation by throwing such simple and judgmental responses at people. But the other extreme is, I can't help it, that's just the way I am. How dare you, this side of Calvary, this side of Pentecost, this side of the New Testament, this side of the church, this side of all the cool things God's done for 2,000 years, how dare you look at an issue in your life that God wants to deal with and say, I can't help it, that's just the way I am. Now I'll beat the mess out of you if you say that. How dare you act like there's something about you that's so broken that God can't fix it. Now my point is this. Two common but wrong attitudes toward change. One attitude makes it too easy. The other makes it too hard. So where do we land? In the middle. It's not as easy as, easy as we like to make it, but it's not as hard as we like to make it. It's somewhere in the middle, and that's where we need to land. Next one, please, sir. <clears throat> Let's break the cycle of insanity in the church. You know that cute little definition of insanity? Always doing the same thing but expecting different results. Remember that one? Hit that one more time. I like to say this, if insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results, then the answer is, if you want something you've never had, you're going to have to do something you've never done. 
Now think about that when you think about something in your life you want to be different. If you want something in your life to be different, if you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do something you've never done. For me, it was something we've already talked about. I wanted to break out of this cycle of feeling pretty good for a little while and then dipping down into mild depression. Feeling good for a little while, dipping down. I was like, God, really? Is this what life's got to be like? Well, what I had to learn to do, if I want something I've never had, I've got to do something I've never done. Well, what I had to learn to do was monitor and manage my words about myself to myself. And one of the things that changed for me was I learned to say nice things to myself about myself. Guess what? I had to do something that initially I wasn't comfortable with to break out of a cycle. Does that make sense? So if you want a breakthrough, you're probably going to have to do something you've never done before. Next one, please. Some hard facts about change. People don't change when they see the light. They change when they feel the heat. I wish that weren't true. But most of the time, we have to be forced to change. Now, what I ask you to do prayerfully is ask God to help you be a quick learner. How many of you know you can learn things the easy way or the hard way? Wouldn't it be smarter to do it the easy way? Let's just say that God's prompting you in your time up here at the school that, you know what, your self-esteem is based more on the opinion of others than it is me, God. What if God says to you, you know, dude, do that? <laughs> what if God says to you, your, your opinion of yourself, your self-esteem, your self-worth is based more on the opinion of others than it is my opinion? The easy way would be, God, that's a little bit uncomfortable, but I want to go to work on that. And I'm going to focus on that the rest of my time here. That would be the easy way. Now, what you could do is say, I'd rather focus on learning to prophesy. I'd rather focus on learning to lead worship. I'd rather focus on this, that, or the other. And about three to five years from now, you will have made some bad choices in life because you didn't base your self-esteem on God's word and will, but the opinion of others. Whose fault will that be? Now, guess what God will graciously do? He'll give you another opportunity to learn. But it's going to be a lot harder. Say yes if I'm making any sense. Try to make it the easy way. Try to pay attention to God. Next one, please. People change when they hurt enough they have to, learn enough they want to, and receive enough they're able to. Hurt enough they have to, learn enough they want to, and receive enough they're able to. Now, the cool thing is, life provides the hurt. We have to seek out the learning. And we have to get around people and places 
that know how to receive easily. I think, as I said earlier, you're in one of the safest places on earth to learn to receive from God. So do it. Risk working in areas of your life. Can I give you all a little secret about attractiveness? Attractiveness is an attitude. Attractiveness is an attitude. What do you mean by that? There's no two ways about it. Every culture has a way they define beauty. Every culture on earth has a way they define beauty. Beauty and attractiveness are not the same thing. You can be attractive and not, by the definition of your culture, beautiful. Attraction is a force pulling people and things toward you. Attraction is an attitude. You cannot determine all the attributes. Some you can, but you cannot determine all the attributes of beauty as defined by your culture. You can determine your attributes of attractiveness. Say yes if that makes sense. Beauty isn't always a blessing, by the way. Do you know that most beautiful, smart people are insecure? Most beautiful, smart people are insecure because they always have to deal with, is it my beauty you're attracted to or is it me? Because most of us instinctively realize our body is not us. And what you really crave, hunger for, and we're created to want is someone who's nuts about you, not your container. Now, you kind of want them to like your container. And one day married, you're going to let them enjoy your container. But it's you that you want them to love. And you and your container are not the same thing. Attractiveness. Listen, if you ever hold yourself in high esteem, anybody around you you need to will also. Let me say it the negative way. If you don't hold yourself in high esteem, how in the world do you think somebody else is going to? If you don't learn to honor yourself, you will not be, around, you will not be comfortable around people who do. If you don't learn to honor yourself, you will not be comfortable around people who do. You'll be comfortable around people who don't. What am I trying to say to you? You've got to learn to embrace yourself as a wonderful, delightful, unique, one-of-a-kind creation of God. Does that make sense? There's not a person in this room that is not amazingly attractive. Not one. But how high the volume of your attractiveness gets is going to depend how much at peace you become with that thought, that concept. We'll talk more about that as we go through the week. Next one, please. Guard against the Esau syndrome. This is in your notes, right? Remember Esau, right? What did he do? He sold his birthright for what? 
like a bowl of soup, porridge, whatever you call it. All right, what is a syndrome? It's a set of symptoms that identify and characterize the disease. In other words, there's this collection of symptoms that I call the Esau syndrome. All right, next one, please. Living life from the outside in. Is that number one? They might be out of order because I've changed it around. Um, that's number four. Sorry about that. Living life from the outside in. And we'll talk more about this as the week goes on. You are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. The most important real part of yourself is your spirit. You've got to learn to live from the inside outward. God designed you to be directed and nourished from within. I no longer enter any room needing anything. When I go into a room, when I get up in front of people like yourself, I don't get up here needing anything from you. I get up here already full of everything I need. Why? I got it from a source other than you. Being spiritual to me is living your life from the inside out. Being spiritual for me now is learning to live nourished, sustained, and directed, educated, inspired, motivated from the inside out, not the outside in. I want to be moved from the inside outward, not the outside inward. And that's a process. It's tricky. But part of the Esau syndrome is he wanted something from the outside in to nourish him, not the inside out. All right, next one, please, sir. A second part of the Esau syndrome of a, is a lack of hunger for understanding. Proverbs 4, 7, and 16, 6. In all you're getting, get understanding. You've got you to be a student of life and change. You've got to pay attention. How does God get my attention? How does God work in me now that he's got my attention? In other words, how do I cooperate with God in this process of change. Without understanding the ways of God, you'll always need others to feed you and get you out of trouble. Now, is it wrong to need that for seasons? No. But it is wrong to stay there for 10 years, 15, 20, 30, for the rest of your life. One of these days, we want you to become like the third pig that built a house strong enough, solid enough, and protected enough that others come to you for help. Does that make sense? The only way you're going to get there is if you're a student of how God works in people's lives. Next one, please. The Esau syndrome, an intolerance or low tolerance for conflict or discomfort. Sometimes we avoid opportunities to change because it's going to be temporarily uncomfortable. And you know what? It is. There ain't no two ways about it. When you submit to a process of change, it's almost always going to be temporarily uncomfortable. People sit down in counseling and they come because something in their life's broken. Well, often I have to say to them, as we go to work on your issues, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Because to get you where you need to be, we got to figure out what's broken in where you are, and that's probably going to be painful. Mark, one through, Mark 4, you know, the parable of the sower. 
and I don't particularly like the words because they're a little harsh, quitters, campers, and climbers, but the bottom line is don't ever quit. Don't ever, don't ever become satisfied entirely. Now live with contentment, but don't ever be satisfied with where you are. One of the things my wife and I appreciate so much is here we are at 57, and we still have this, this push to grow and change. My wife has a Pilates studio of her own. She, she does all that kind of stuff. So, And then what is your AQ? You know, you got IQ, and now you got EQ, your emotional quotient. Well, I read a book one time about AQ, which is your adversity quotient. Here's a one way to think about that. What does the devil have to do to get you to let go and drop something that you really want? How much does he have to push you around to get you to back off from something you want? Does a little bit of adversity just make you quit? And I'm telling you, from this point, vantage point in life, looking back, there are moments in life that you've got to want what you want enough to go through whatever adversity you have to to get there. Your AQ is a big deal. Next one, please. Number four, part of the Esau syndrome, is what I call the shortcut spirit. We want gain without pain, success without sweat, reigning without training, and ruling without schooling. I remember sitting, anybody ever heard of a guy named Howard Hendricks? Most people haven't. He's, a, he's passed away now, I think. Forgive me, Howard, if you're not, but I thought he had. But he was, he was an older gentleman when I saw him, when I was about 30, 35 years old. And I sat right in the front row as he taught, just like I'm teaching you now. And he was one of my heroes because of some books he'd read, written that I'd read. He was just this awesome guy in God. And I sat there just, just all enjoying his teaching until he said this. Here I was about 30, 31, 32. And he said, he asked this question, at what age range do most people finally know why they're here? What would your guess be? What age range do most people finally figure out why they're here? Guess. 60s? It's not that depressing. His answer was, in your 40s. Well, here I was at 32, and inside myself I said, oh, dude, you're full of baloney. The reality of it is, when I really feel like I hit the zone that I've learned to live in, guess where it was? In my 40s. Now, I'm not telling you you have to be that late, but what I am telling you is this. God is not in as much of a hurry as you are. God is much more interested in who or what you are becoming than he is in what you're currently doing. God really is committed to making you a force for him and his kingdom. And trust me, it takes a while to make you into a real weapon in the hands of God. But the other cool thing is, here I sit at my age and stage, and I'm having a blast. Honestly, I would say this to you. I feel like I'm about a decade behind where I could have been. But you know what? I'm way ahead of most of my peers. Most of them are way further behind than that. 
And I mean that by the grace of God. The trick is you got to figure out how you can live a life of passion and purpose for decades. How can you live a life on fire for God for decades? I do want to, again, give you some bad news. You're going to be eating my dust because I will not let you outpassion me. I will not be outpassioned by a bunch of punks. So come big or don't come. I dare you. I dare you. Do I? Take it outside? Come on. Every addiction is a shortcut. What does that mean? Every addictive behavior is reaching for the wrong thing to meet a right need. Every addiction is reaching for the wrong thing to meet a right need. It's not wrong to have needs. What makes addictive behavior so harmful is you're reaching for the wrong stuff to meet them. All right? What's next? I think we're done. Forget that. Go back to that last one. Oop. All right. Time to quit, isn't it? Any quick questions? Lord willing, in the morning, we'll start into the boundary stuff. Can I pray for you real quick? All right. Father, I just thank you for these wonderful folks. I thank you for this, this awesome place of life that they're in, this awesome place of spiritual engagement they're in. And God, I pray for every single one, both the guys and the girls, I pray that you arrest them, Father, that you put their attention on the most fruitful areas of their life, areas that with the least effort will produce the greatest return. And I thank you for it, sir. Help them to connect with the right people that will propel them forward. We ask you, sir, that none of them will this be a wasted season of their life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Bless you guys. See you in the morning.